0: Welcome to the Boy Park Art Podcast with Una McAteer and
1: Zara Linus. Boy Park Art is our virtual meeting place named after the much-changed public space beside the Belfast School of Art, where we used to meet and chat. We invite you
0: to our virtual park to share in conversations about art and artists in Northern Ireland and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 19 of Boy Park Art Podcast. So I'm really excited today to have Hayley morris Cafiero with us. Hayley is an artist, a performer, provocateur and a spectator and she usually uses mainly photography. She went viral in 2013, I think it was, with her work Weight Watchers and that's when I had first heard of her and I was really amazed and starstruck when she turned up in uni in Belfast in 2018, I think it was, when I first met you. Her current work is the bully pulpit, although hopefully we'll find out more about what you're really up to at the minute and yeah. Your new ventures ahead as well. So yep. thank you very much for coming to talk to us, Haley. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Obviously, when you moved to Ireland, you moved quite a distance and away from your dogs and your husband and everything. So I was just really interested in how or if that had any effect on how you work.
2: So what it did was, so when I moved here, what it, there's kind of two kind of aspects of work so there's teaching and artistic creation and so the way that i've always created artistically has always been i mean for 14 years before coming to belfast has always been like little compartmentalized little moments so even weight watchers that wasn't necessarily the images weren't planned like the when i did them it was planned you know so it'd be like a holiday or summer or something and so when I started working on Bully Pulpit, again, that was, those were very planned. So I kind of, when I moved to, to Belfast, the, the way I worked didn't really change in terms of artistically, because that's kind of, I'm not somebody who's going to do, um, who's not going to, I'm not going to make images every week. You know what I mean? Like I, I'll dedicate time to research, but it's grant writing or Planning or something like that, but I'm pretty much somebody who will always kind of plan to make a shoot Which is interesting because I'm not really, you know, consider myself that much of a planned person but when I came to Belfast teaching completely changed and The system in America and UK are very different. So not just the higher education system but in America, you don't really work with teams of, of staff on one, you know, module so when I moved, it was actually, um, you know, I think a good thing for the teaching to basically I was alone for six months, no dogs, no husband. And I, I taught on every module, I think, um, except for you know, uh, every practical module, I think both the, except for the first year MFA. So I got, I got to know the course really quickly. I got to know everybody's name pretty, you know, like, I think it was a great, um, opportunity to just kind of jump in and I don't think being alone actually helped that because had I had somebody you know to be home with it you know it wouldn't have allowed me at least to feel like I could just I mean because I lived at school for the first semester I mean I was which was great I mean and then so I think that has changed the dogs came in January <laughs> two of the dogs came in January and so that meant I had to come home and you know tend to them and I you know but I think really kind of, and if anything really changed over the last two years, it's been lockdown and teaching online. I mean, I think you can ask, you know, a hundred people and you're probably going to get the same answer. So the husband's here now and the other two dogs are here now. So everybody's here now, but, um, which is fabulous. But I think had that all happened in, you know, when I first got here, I don't think I would have been able to assimilate on the course as quickly or, tended to them as much. It was really a chance I can, to be selfish and just dive in.
1: I can really relate to that. My husband, the past few years, has worked abroad. Mm-hmm. So he would be three weeks away and a week home. Mm-hmm. And in those three weeks away, I am completely Sarah the artist or Zara whatever. And then whenever he comes home, it's sort of split off into the, you know, you start wearing the different hats. Yeah. And, and he's incredibly
2: supportive and he would have but I think I would have felt guilty or whatever, but I think, um, you know, I think that's like, I, for like the first three weeks, I didn't even have internet. So, I mean, it was like literally no reason to come home, (laughs) you know, so, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it was great. And everybody at the university was so welcoming. So, I mean, it's, it was, it was, you know, it was a no brainer, but, um, I think I, I mean, it's pretty unusual even now, like even after that first semester, I never worked with as many students as I did during that, as I did that first semester. Like, so that that was really, really good.
1: Might it be an idea, very quickly, to just give an idea of the, the work that you've done? Because we've, we've mentioned Weight Watchers, we've mentioned the Bully Pulpit, but for yeah. anybody in the podcast who hasn't or isn't aware of the work, just to, a quick description.
2: Yeah, so um, Weight Watchers. I'm sorry if I, I'll pause because my dog likes to dig
0: nowhere. He's, I don't know what he's digging for, but um, so if you hear this weird scratching, we're using um, random animals in the background. Don't worry, eh, it's fine. Okay, good. So
2: Weight Watchers was a project that I did from 2010 to 2015, and. Basically, it was investigating the gaze and how uh, society uses it to communicate our feelings towards one another and really how we determine our own self-worth based on how others see us. And so what I did was, you know, it started with this, you know, I was doing a previous project that was just about me. In public spaces that I'm that I ever think about my body size, and that's typically when you're on you know socializing, you go out to eat, you go when you go on holiday, you're just surrounded by constant you know advertising. And, in, and where I live, you went to the pool or you went to the beach. So that project was just about me in spaces. It wasn't about anybody else. But I was uh, set up the camera to shoot one of those in the Coca-Cola steps in Times Square. You know, just a self-portrait on film, and then I did a few more, you know, a few minutes later, and I developed the film, like, two or three weeks later, and um, saw the the first image, where, you know, I mean, because I remember the woman is blonde, long hair, she's absolutely beautiful, you can't see her in the photograph, but, but when I get, you know, when I saw the negative that the man, you know, I have to say, I have to use very specific language, because he appeared to be... Um, smearing at me. And so, and then it happened on the same roll of film. And so I thought, well, I've heard people say things about me. What happens if I just try to, you know, see what happens, you know, kind of as people walk by. And I have to be clear that I don't know what anybody's thinking or reacting to in the photos. I mean, they're strangers. Um, It's just that moment of time that's unaltered and just presented to start a conversation. It's a pretty... Quickly in the beginning of the project, I learned that I needed to um, travel because, you know, Memphis, like a lot of cities in America, it's not a very... Walking city, in other words, they drive from one end of the shopping mall to the other, right. you know. And so, so I realized that I could do these kind of summer trips with students. Like um, another big passion of mine was professional practices. So I would set up this kind of a portfolio review in another country, and we would do all the art things. And then I would set up meetings with them, and um, you know, it was a class over the, over the summer. And while they were doing student things, free time, I would do my project. And so I was able to do that for about four summers. And, you know, again, that allowed me to get a diverse group of people because it's not about men, women, a certain demographic. And then in uh, 2013, as you said, it's it went viral. And it went viral like 2013, 2014, and 2015. And from the second, so I was still making Weight Watchers when this happened. And like the second I knew, like, because Huffington Post said they were going to publish an article, but I didn't know it was published. But I knew it was published because I got this email from like, like the subject line is something like, you know, you're ugly and I'm like, okay. And then that's when I figured out, like, so from the second that that work was published and eventually went viral, I started getting hateful comments from people.
1: Can I ask, where did it go viral?
2: Oh, well, it started on a blog called Lens Scratch, which is a really great photo blog. Uh, they dedicate posts, they have posts every day, published every day. And some someone on Huffington Post USA saw it on Scratch did an article, but that didn't really go viral. It was when Daily Mail UK published it, and that's when it went viral, viral. And that was, like, for about three weeks of constant, I mean, it was constant um, interviews. Like, I was booked to go on Anderson Cooper. I was booked to go, like, on all, I mean, like, when these people go viral... It's just they're inundated with producers from all these TV shows, and I was booked to do like two or three different shows in New York, and then the Pope quit. Like I don't know anything about religion, but I can tell you when the Pope quit because it just stopped. And and which was actually kind of a good thing because at the time, yeah, at the time you know I mean I'm just a photographer. I'm a, I'm a lecturer in Memphis working with students, and I did this project and and but the you know, the managing, like the media managing was, I mean, when it was high, it was at least a 60 hour a week unpaid job. It gave me some time to kind of breathe and, I mean, it didn't stop all completely, but it, you know, gave me some time to kind of, you know, redirect. And so then in May, I went viral again. And then in November, and then I kind of held off everything because I knew I was going to publish a book. So I wanted to kind of control the media a little bit and kind of direct that attention towards crowdsourcing. So I held off. um, Anybody who reached out to me for a story was pushed to November 2014 when I had my Kickstarter and then it went little baby viral again. And then it went viral again in 2015. It's basically up and down, up and down, up and down.
1: I did a wee bit of internet stalking before we talked to anybody on the podcast. And mm-hmm. as I was looking through the various articles and some of the YouTube videos, there was one word that really leapt into my brain that I thought described you very well, and it was resilient. Mm. And that's coming from you know, your earlier days, right through that going viral. The stress of that, I just thought, my goodness, like I would find that really difficult to cope with.
2: You know, it was no, it was honestly, it's it's just like my body physiologically just ad- adjusted to it. Because what happened was the first, so Daily Mail UK. I, I woke up woke up at like six thirty in the morning, let's say, and by that you know when I woke up at six thirty, I had three emails from Daily Mail UK, right. One was, "Oh, we saw your project and we'd love to do a story. Let us know, okay. The next was, you know, like an hour later, so sent three am my time or two am. you know. The next was, "Oh, here's what we're going to write about your story. Let us know what you think." And then right before I woke up, it was, "We haven't heard from you. We're going to press in an hour with this, like it or not, and it was wrong. So I learned pretty quickly to basically. Like, stop. Like, I didn't get starstruck or anything like that. I was like, no, this is not, you know, this is not what my project's about. Slow down. Because if you, if you tell them I do not authorize you, it stops them in their tracks. And then they say, and then you say, okay, but they've already invested time in it. So, okay, fine. Let's, you know, this is, this is what I approve. This is what I don't approve. Yada, yada. So from then on, it basically, it's like my body physiologically prepared for waking up in the morning, having several requests. You know, I got, just kind of got used to, I, I carried around a, a change of clothes and makeup and with me, which I never do, by the way, like ever. But I would get sometimes interview requests for like within, like if I left in the morning, it would be the same day. So like it was either pass on the interview request or you know, be ready. So lots of Skype interviews, lots of live TV interviews all over the world. And you you just kind of, you know, thankfully, you know, I was working most, mostly with MFA students. And as you know, you know, your flexibility is in the one-to-one meetings. Like there is a, there is a class time, but then basically other than that, I was meeting with students. So I was able to kind of fit interviews around that. Yeah. I think it's, I think, what I learned pretty quickly is you, you you say no, like you don't like no, that's not let's take, you know, stop, let's talk for a second. And then just managing it from there was just so I woke up at five AM every morning and I checked my email and I and I answered my questions and they asked the same questions. It's the funny thing is that most of the, most of them had the same so I so I started getting smart and copying and pasting the answers to the questions. And so, you know, just the, the more difficult ones were the ones that, you know, would ask different questions or try to get me to say, and also I learned pretty quickly, they wanted me to say something about the people in the photographs, something negative, which is A, not true and not my nature, but B, is the only really kind of recourse that the people in the photographs have, because, you know, I can use the, their image in public for artistic purposes. But if I, you know, say anything about them that I don't know, that's, I mean, A, it's not true, but B, that's slander. So constantly the press was trying to get me, they wanted something new. They wanted something, something new. And then there was the ones that were trying to get the police officers fired. And I'm like, no, we're not going to get the police officers fired. You know, yeah, there's a, there's a PR statement apparently in the communications office of the NYPD that that image is photoshopped. And I'm like, okay, you know, like, like to be a file in the NYPD for having an image, it's, uh, you know, it's surreal, right? You know, it's, it's surreal. You know, I just was very careful to stay back and just kind of let people talk.
1: In our last chat, Una and I were talking about the artist talk that Alistair Heron gave for the uh, the Thursday Fine Art Talk. And we were talking about photography. And I... photographer, I know you were saying about it being a barrier or some form of protection.
0: Your camera when you're out, yeah.
1: Yeah, whereas your camera, you don't have it in front of you, Get Away. I think, I mean, I've always
2: felt, because again, they're, they're different opinions. I never felt like the camera was a protection. I felt like it was actually the, almost like the permission card. You know, it was almost like that way to connect to people because I didn't really need protection, you know. I mean, so for me, a camera was just kind of a way to, you know, whether it was this project or other work that I've done, I always used a camera to actually talk to people and, and not more connect than protect. The camera in this, you know, for me is is a tool for documenting performances, really. If I were to, you know, I mean, I, I love photography. I love teaching photography. I know a lot about photography, but if I were to talk about what kind of gets me excited in the morning, it's performance. Like when I want, when I want to, when I want to be kind of smacked into getting stuff done i i look at performance
0: so your love of performance has definitely come in to the the bully pulpit
2: well i think even weight watchers it was even though they were mundane performances you just kind of so i mean i didn't get into performance art first and then photography it was it was photography first and and sculpture and then performance and i think even for weight watchers i don't really i don't think people realize that there is a level of performance in that because you do like have to stop, even even though it's a few seconds, you do have to kind of put get into a mindset of what you're doing, which I think is kind of a, a minimal of performance. And even though they're they're not um, major performances, like you know, I think in terms of um, the bully pulpit, that there's much more acting in terms on my part because I really tried to study the bullies. Um, so let's give you some podcasting editing fodder. Um, so after Weight Watchers went viral, I started collecting all the hateful comments, not all of them, but most of the hateful comments that people either emailed me or posted on blogs or commented or whatever. And I, cause I knew I wanted to respond to them. And so it co- took me a couple of years to try to figure out the best way of responding. And it kind of dawned on me is that the, um, there's kind of two things at play. Is one that the people, the bullies, their image is absolutely you know what's the most important to them. Like their very image, and I don't mean necessarily they want to look beautiful or anything like that, but their profile is what's absolutely important to them because it's all curated. And then two that if I um, responded to them in text, they would just it would either fuel them or they would delete it. But since an image cannot be removed from the internet, like that's a phenomenon that we're in right now. Um, No amount of power, no amount of money can remove an image from from the internet. That basically, if my response were image-based, then they couldn't do anything to delete it. And so that was the bully pulpit. And so I picked 25, I narrowed down from like 4,000 to 60 to then 25 bullies that I studied their public profile, and I costumed myself to look like them, and then I insert their hateful comment into the image. And so for the performances for Fully Pulpit, it was a lot more like method. It was lots of studying their mannerisms. I mean, just what I got in public, it was, you know, the the, um, research I did on them was, you know, less than five minutes of Google, right? But once I found the profile, I did study and, you know, try to you know, articulate my body and articulate my face to kind of match theirs.
1: Basically, putting a mirror up, some of those images are very comical. Yeah, oh yeah. Really, really comical. But there is a sense of discomfort. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I definitely, whatever whatever work I want, I do, you know, I, I want I want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you to kind of like, you know, I like that kind of like scratching, you know, at the skin, tapping on the forehead. And I do use humor very much in my work to, you know, kind of break down. I I enjoy doing work about difficult subjects. I mean, for me, the reason like this first, that first email I got, that hate mail, I just cracked me up. I mean, every, every hate mail, every blog that's dedicated to how ugly I am, it cracks me up because it's just the amount of time. I mean, literally the calories that they took to type that out was waste. Because what they want to do is they actually want to stop me. They don't want me to feel bad about myself. They want me to stop what I'm doing. And that, that, makes, that means I'm doing something right. So it actually motivates me more. And so, you know, I knew with fully pulpit I wanted to use humor. And, you know, again, to take control because they don't, you know, something else that they might learn is you actually don't control, you don't own your likeness. Like, actually, so some people said, well, you know, why don't you just show the pictures of the bullies? I'm like, well, A, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. That's easy. You get over it. You, you, you have a reaction, and then you move on. What I'm interested in more is that kind of digestion of, you know, these profiles. And, and so they, they don't, you know, they don't own their image. And I look very much like them. But at the same time, you know, what I didn't like about, well, it's not what I didn't like, but what Weight Watchers, you know, having them people in public, I can't, you know, again, I can't say anything about them, right? There's, but with Bully Pulpit, I can say whatever I want about the people because I'm not sharing their names. I'm not sharing their location. Some of them sent me their, I mean, I don't even have to Google their name and address. It's like, it's all in the email. But if they're scrolling through their phone and they see themselves and they say, oh, you know crap like that's much more uh, effective i think than um any other kind of interaction
0: that i would have with them so you mentioned about knowing your rights about the media that people didn't say about you and how you could control that and about what you can use of other people like their likeness and stuff how important do you think it is for artists to know about do you think it gives people more confidence if they know their rights about what they can and can't do in public?
2: Oh definitely. I mean I think particularly social engaged work. I think it's I think it's important for any artist to know how to protect themselves and their work. I mean any artists, but particularly with social engaged work. Uh, part of my research was meeting with with, a, with an attorney. Thankfully, you know, I reached out to one, and he supported my project and basically charged me pennies on the dollar for his fee. And um, and he told me, you know, we had a conversation early on about yes and no avoid avoid and anytime for years later if i had a question he would just always answer it and that's it helped me basically with it helped me kind of just have confidence in in talking about my work to just these hundreds of interviews that i was doing because i mean i'm not I think I'm pretty aware, you know, and that's something that building, you know, again, doing, going viral, it helped me build confidence in talking about the project and even interacting with people, you know, like that, because I've never been interviewed like that before. But it just gave me confidence to know, like, okay, these are the rules. I would say that informed my working much more than anything artistically. Like, I'm not somebody who just soaks in theory and um, you know, other artists and as I'm working. Definitely logistics and legalities were at
1: the forefront. You mentioned about uh, being safe and oh. keeping yourself safe, and public performance is an arena where an artist has to be aware of their safety. And I saw then that you had made an entry in the art therapy master's blog for the Ulster University. How did that come about? Uh, are you interested in the therapy side of things? What's the story? Yeah, so
2: I'm really good friends with the course director of the art therapy course at Ulster University, and. You know, it's not the first time that um, somebody has talked to me about my work in terms of therapeutic context. When I'm, which I support, any, any, anything that my work does to benefit somebody else is great. So I, I'm supportive of that. When I make it, it's not the intention. I have no intention of making the work for my own therapeutic needs or, or anybody else's. So, in terms of, um, you know, collaboration and connection, was basically just realizing that a lot of the photography students were doing work about mental health. And I think, um, you know, throughout the kind of three years, you see somebody identifying that it's okay to talk about mental health, and then they start doing work about it, and then they want to be an advocate. You know, they want to kind of go beyond just even working and and I saw art therapy as a way to inspire them for future careers, so not only for for careers but then to kind of be an activist as well. So Pamela came and did a talk workshop with the photo students, and I did a talk or a little workshop with her students because the idea is you know even though like um like so body positivity and body image and art therapy I mean, there's so many different people who have used the project um, within their research which again I'm pleased about but when I'm making it it's not it's not really about those.
1: Within that blog you mentioned Rosie Morton and mm-hmm. um, so I took a few notes and she, she was mentioning about dealing with parts of yourself you can't face and projecting and I would take that as the other actors in your images they're the ones that have certain parts of themselves that they can't base and are projecting towards you and the images but again as you say you don't know what's going on in their head so you can't tell Mm -hmm.
2: yeah so yeah I mean it's I think I can't I personally can't connect to therapeutic processes when I'm making is because I can it's very clinical It's it's like a social experiment and I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna take a group of students to MoMA and along the way we're going to stop if there's anything and oh here's something here's a bunch of people okay let's get it done and move on it's very clinical it's very kind of just my way of working is very and so with bully pulpit came along it was I mean each image was like its own movie like I had a shot list I had I had a wig I had props I had locations I had I mean it's very it's just kind of the way I work and so I think that's kind of you know when I'm in the process of making something it's very different than when I'm making on when I'm making it, it's very clinical. And then afterwards it's more reflective. That's
1: it's more interesting. More. Yeah. Because I was thinking about agency looking at the images. But you're kind of cutting the feet out from under me thinking about that. So it's not about giving yourself agency at all.
2: Yeah. And I think, and and that's something that happened in grad school was the first time I started working in self-portrait and I was doing these, you know, self-portraits of basically, it's always been about the uncontrollable body, right? So, you know, in some, in much, in grad school, it was much more medical because at the time, you know, I had a bunch of family members dying of cancer and, So it was much more about what happens underneath the surface of the skin and the controlling of the physical body, and it was like one shoot, like one critique I had, you know, because I'm not somebody like do not take my clothes off, you know, like if I could shower with clothes on, you know, and so my first critique in grad school, I um, you know, I was clothed, and they, you know, my uh, tutors were like. You need to get naked. Like you're talking about the body, but I, you're not. And so it was just like, I just had a little chat with myself over the weekend and I just did it. And then from that point on, it's been, it's not about somebody else. It's just, that's my work. You know, like, so I did a whole series of beautiful images of me reflecting in a funhouse mirror where I'm like only wearing underwear. And, and so if you like, look, oh, and my MFA show was me nude trying to fit into a bathroom stall a public bathroom stall, like, and dieting for seven weeks to try to fit into that bathroom stall. But it was like, shoot, okay, get naked. All right, shoot's over. Let me put on as many clothes as I can. I mean, it's just, it's just when I'm working, it's a completely different, you know, it's almost like I'm my own employee. And that's something chemical reaction that happened in grad school that just, it's not, I mean, it's, I'm not somebody who says, you know, like actors talk about characters completely in the third person. I'm not that far. But it's definitely, um, you know, that's me and that's me. Like they're, you know, like I don't sit around and I'm not a, like, I love performing. I love doing performative photography, but I'm, I'm not like an actor. Like I don't want to act, you know, like I think it's more, I don't know. It's interesting because the performances are private because no one's around. Well, generally, but the images get, end, end up getting seen by more people than if I had a, like a performance, like a play
1: so interesting everybody has some form of relationship with their body well, I, I whenever i was about 18 or 19 i was still fitting into my age 11 jeans mm-hmm. and for quite a long time i uh, developed a bit of a shoe fetish i've got a huge collection of shoes and i would have dressed from the shoes up mm-hmm. and i always wanted to go to art college came to art college very very late which is probably better for me because i appreciated it more the one link that i did have with art was maybe about 20 years ago and it was very difficult but it was a real push for me and it changed my relationship with my body a little bit i got working as a life model in lima body tech that would help me start to see my body just as the, the vessel mm-hmm. instead of the identity
2: yeah definitely it's basically like a disassociation that you've made with your body and and it, for the different purposes that you're using it for and so your body doesn't tie into your identity it's not you know like if you want to if you want to dress yourself to be your identity with the shoes i i do that too by the way i my entire wardrobe is revolved around my shoe collection and so that is your body and your identity but if you want to use your body for a different function then you've you've taken on that about 20 years ago that you can do that and still you know
1: in saying that, it was only last year that I, I wasn't naked because it wasn't appropriate, but I stripped down to the, the bare minimum in performance because I still wasn't comfortable getting the skin out.
2: You know, again, working with my own work and working with students for many, many, many years, I think it it's depends on when the clothes get in the way. And it's not just the clothes get in the way of nudity, but maybe you got the wrong clothes. So like I've had students who, you know, um, you know, like a cami, you know, or like a negligee like nightgown, it's taking the work much more sexual. So it doesn't mean nudity, but it does mean a different type of, you know, so it's it's just a decision that we all make. And I think the the when you know you've, when you know it's wrong is when people are looking at what you're wearing more than what you're. Saying or doing. I mean, you can never control all of them because there's always going to be someone who's looking at what you're wearing no matter what. But, you know, that's kind of like when I went for me and working with students, like, you know, maybe you shouldn't wear a bright blue, you know, top if it's about, you know, you being invisible, you know, or something like that. Yeah. I had somebody who wore flesh colored underclothes to be nude, but they got the wrong size. So everything was super tight and it was. It wasn't a judgment thing. It was like, you could, it was more about the lines of their body because I wasn't watching what they were doing because I was so captivated by the the way the, their, their clothes were just, anyway. And so I had to give them that feedback because it was really beautiful, but it's not what they were going for.
1: That's funny. I would be quite aware of my gaze. Again, going back to being thin and small, all the women in my family have got huge bosom. I thought I was adopted for a lot of years because there was nothing there with me. So I have a, a bit of a fascination with boobs and I'm really aware that I have to lift my chin up mm-hmm. to not <laughs> yes. It's not because I'm being, there's nothing sexual or lustful, it's just the shape. And I'm yes. really curious about the shape of the body, but yet I would be very self-conscious if somebody was to look at that's mine. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't know. I think I think I've always
2: used humor as that kind of way of like all my life, trying to kind of if anybody looked at me inappropriately or did something inappropriate, I'd probably use humor. You know, I'd probably say something. You know, to you know, kind of remind them with humor and embarrassment versus like
0: you know what the are you looking at.
1: So totally understand.
0: Humor over aggression.
1: Anything you did ceramics. Yes. Do you still play with mud? So yeah. So
2: I think so. So ceramics for me about halfway through grad school I realized was not necessarily I loved it for the chemical reactions and the alchemy and the textures, but it was much too heavy. And I don't mean that like. Just kind of, you know, this this idea of something that would never leave this earth. Like, no, after it's fired, it's not leaving the earth. You could pulverize it, but it's still not going away. So I stopped using ceramics about halfway through grad school as a, like an artistic communicator. Now, I did in Memphis make, sold them, but they were they were for fun. So my hobby, I'm not a big hobby person, but my hobby was making these pots that were brightly colored, and had little swirly feet, and, you know, black and white rims, you know, very Tim Burton, and that was, like, my fun, and I would, you know, just kind of make these pots that, so up until about two years ago, yeah, I played with mud, but it was much more, like, fun. I had two kilns, you know, not that making isn't fun, but it was much more, it was, like, zero conceptual, like, it wasn't about concept at all, it was about 100% about just making stuff. And so, yeah, I had two kilns, actually three kilns. I mean, I was, I was a pretty good little production. And then here, it's not logistics. Like, I never even looked into the logistics of using ceramics kilns. Like, I never asked them. I'm sure they would have let me, you know, work something out. But I was never in the headspace. Like, I'm always, it's like a lot more interesting. There's a lot, you know, so many more students than I had in America. Like, I taught more classes. Like, actual classes where my responsibility with the number of students here is so much higher. And so trying to find the headspace to you know, figure that out it just never happened. So yeah, I, I I don't I mean I with all due respect, I don't understand I understand, but my way of working with fine art versus photography, I've never it's it's a thing in the UK, I get it. But like um how there's people in fine art that can work with photography and then there's photography um i just i but i just kind of i see a piece typically like weight watchers and bully pulpit are the most photographic i've ever done most of my work is like, i'll see how something should look and then i'll figure out how to make it and then work my, my way backwards so leather daguerreotypes you name it steel that's kind of the way i work and so it's probably, I don't know, like, fine art, but I, I think it's just kind of just, if I woke up one day, and uh, the only thing I can't do is paint. Like, I cannot paint a wall one color. Like, I can't, like, I can't even paint that wall white. Like, I don't, it's like, I would get bored, or it would be streaky, and I have to do it a hundred times. So, you know, like, I can, I mean, so I got into printmaking. I wanted to learn printmaking. I got, I got sculpture. Like, all of these are a set of tools. The camera's a tool, everything's a tool, my body's a tool, everything's a tool. And when I see something how I want it made, then I just figure out how to make it. So I
1: came through the fine art, as people listening to the podcast will know, through the Sculpture Lens course mm-hmm. and ended up using porcelain in my degree show. At the minute, I quite enjoy the, um, So I like working and making performance mm-hmm. and the the tactility and the gestural movement of working with clay, for me, lines up quite well with performance. Oh, yeah. That's kind of where my research is. Yeah, I, I would say
2: everything I made in clay was physical. Like it was, you know, it was about the physicality of making, not just physicality of the clay itself. I think if I were I don't know, there's just always, I haven't seen anything in clay in 15 years, so I haven't wanted to really dive in, but I love, absolutely love, um, you know, experimenting with porcelain and different glazes and different surfaces and, you know, my favorite thing in the world is, you know, um, porcelain that's fired to the point that it's transparent and you know working with the name but it's basically print a photograph three-dimensionally and print press the clay into it and you have a translucent Mm -hmm. image and and, and, an image made up of thickness of the clay that is super exciting for me it has no need for what i'm making (laughs) look i have no idea associated with it right now i'm not somebody who's like oh that's cool let me figure out something how to make like i'm pretty much like oh got a vision. How am I going to make this? You know, the new project is a lot about costumes. And so I could either collaborate with a fashion person, but, uh, or hire, but I'm broke. So, or you're not like, you know, all my money is used on like other things. So I'm going to learn how to make basically these military kind of uniforms. So. Have I'm, we
1: skipped a project? Because One of the things I noticed, you you had mentioned doing a project related to the responses that you'd received from the likes of gallerists and people in the art sector. We haven't talked about that. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't. Okay. So kind of un to, again, unpack my head. So
2: there's, so one project I'm working on, so there's Weight Watchers and the blue pulpit was the negative people. And then there's the military uniforms are for the positive people. Um, So I'm collaborating with 25 of them and I'm basically constructing their self portraits, but you won't be able to see my likeness, but I'm basically constructing a, almost like a coat of armor for them um, using, would you hush basically things that inspire them. So um, that's one project. so that'll be the end of basically a three part big project done. And over the weekend I had, I, I shot the first of that new project and I didn't like it so I've been trying to figure out what I visually want to look like and I figured it out over the weekend. So now I'm learning how to sew felt um, hoods. Anyway, so that's one project. The um, Hold on, let me let this dog out. No, better not. She'll go in and disturb her papa. Be quiet. Um, so the other one with the galleries. So Kind of going along with Bully Pulpit and the Bully Pulpit style is that there's just been so many people over the years who have told me inappropriate things, unacceptable inappropriate things, that I never said anything to them because they have power. And it's a different kind of power versus, you know, like, it's basically not just controlling what would happen to my work, but keeping people from seeing my work so it's not just about elevating the work it's about preventing it from being seen and so that project you know I have my 10 so I did three of them for my show at TJ Bolting like Hannah is a fabulous advocate and um, she let me do three for the show and you know to have them in my head for so long and to be able to put them literally on the wall it was fabulous and it was motivating and I'm definitely going to do the project. I'm trying to figure out the best output. So like I want, they're going to, they're so specific. Like they're going to know it's them. So when I, when I, when they go out, I got to be sure that I do it right. Like I'm not going to, you know, it needs a, it doesn't need a whisper. It needs a scream because they are, some of them, it's interesting because there were three at, at, at the TJ Bolting space. One was very specific to the photographer who made it. So as soon as that's, I wouldn't let them go online I wouldn't let anybody put them on the internet in that show, again, because I wasn't ready. Like, I want all 10 of them to be done, and I want to go out with a screen. And so that that one needs to be redone, but that guy's going to figure out who he is pretty damn quick. And then the other one, she's going to figure out who she is pretty quick, and there are some colleagues that we have in common that I'm worried about. But but then the third one, what was interesting, he was a photo editor, that um, it, he looks just like the photo editor I'm referencing. But... He looks so generically like so many other photo editors that people were guessing, dozens of people, and anyway, which I thought was hilarious. So that project's going to be 10, 10 people. They're selected. I need to make eight of them, including one that I showed in January or in February. I just am trying to figure out the best kind of way. Cause if you're going to go out, you're going to, you know, you got to go out be good, you know? Um, and then there's another project. I'm collaborating with somebody in China on using um, motion sensing technology to alter the photograph. And then I'm working um with someone to build artificial intelligence systems for another project so yeah that's kind of my huh
0: you're definitely busy then
2: yes but it's 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 interesting because again even though i have this first so being in in america i was an administrator and probably doing up in the last year probably doing three or four jobs so i did not have the headspace like i'm very i have weight watchers i have to finish weight watchers before i finish something else and that's just It's not like a rule. It's just like my brain won't even be creative until I'm thinking. And so Bully Pulpit, I was working on in America. And then when I came here and I had like that, I mean, because I was doing so much in America administratively. When that was gone, just all these ideas started, like just hit me. And so I find myself being able to be a lot more creative, but I still make work very measured. Like, you know, like I'm working on the positive people probably most actively because I got two grants for it and I need to get that done but at the same time I'm kind of working on the other two because I'm collaborating but it's just kind of like it's kind of like a dead I'm deadline driven like I completely you know relate to students like I am deadline driven and I kind of make myself deadlines with grant applications and whatnot but that's 100% how I work. And so it's one, the positive people will take a while because I got to interview 24 people. But like if some, something happens with the other two, I'll put that one on pause and then do it. It's just kind of, I'm not somebody who's, it's kind of like I keep all these ideas kind of at 30,000 feet level. And then when needed, I'll attack
1: on one. Interesting that you're saying that you're not so much interested in the art therapy side of things. But the projects that you've been talking about, a lot of people can t- take confidence and can maybe you know stand on your shoulders to move forward from the work that you're doing.
0: And I appreciate
2: that, and I respect that, and I'm very, 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 very grateful and pleased that that happens. Like I don't want to. I just when I'm making it, so I think from again talking selfishly about my intention and my purposes, when I make it, it isn't therapeutic. It's almost kind of, I am not trying to find confidence when I'm making the work. I'm trying to exude the confidence. I'm trying to, you know, and if it inspires other things, the others then great. But not, I don't seek out, like, how can I help somebody today? It's basically, how can I get out of my head? And, I mean, my work helps a lot of people, and also makes a lot of people angry. (laughs) So anytime there's a, there's two sides. So if I think about, if I think about others, whether that's, if I think about others, whether it's the therapeutic side or the professional, where is this going to be exhibited or purchased? If I think about anybody else, when I make the work, I don't make it. I'll talk myself out of it. I'll, you know, I have to get it out. What's in my head, almost obsessively, and then move on. Like I have a project that I've been working on for eight years and it's an important project, but I realized that I've solved all the problems. took me seven years of how to solve the problem and how to make it, right? To solve that problem. And then I almost got a grant for it. We're talking like 20,000 pounds, right? Huge grant. And I was like, wait a minute, where it's basically life-size steel pillows with portraits of people on it. Sexual assault survivors, right? It's an incredibly important project. I'm super excited about it. Where am I going to put 30 steel pillows? Like, this is my office. Like, see, it's not very big. So I was like, wait. So I put that project on hold because it needs to be a commission. Like, I need to make it for somebody else and make it to live somewhere else. And so I haven't, you know, like, I have these other projects Anyway, that one can still sit, that one will still be relevant. It's kind of like if I have an idea that I think so the important the, the positive people from 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 weight watchers is important because it's like a third part of a project. Like I need to move on. I need to put that away. I want to do a, a practice PhD on those three projects. Publish them as a book one big book and move on. But everything else just kind of, like, it'll be made. One day the project will be made. And I and I am very careful to kind of, when I'm working with people, when advocates, I speak to them in language that interests them. So I have an advocate who's very interested in a digital project. I don't talk to her about the sealed pillows. Not that she wouldn't like it, but she's interested in digital project. I have another advocate who's interested in Analog processes. So I talked to her about the steel process the steel pillars. I'll talk to her about the. You just have to know who you're talking to
0: I'm very excited about your upcoming work then on the inappropriate comments Haley. So Haley, where can people find out more about you? Um, they can find out more about me by
2: um, Sitting down and having a cup of coffee. Now, um there's my website is if you want to see more about my work. Um it's um um Instagram hMorrisCaffiero. shoot me
1: an email, I'm happy to answer
0: any questions. I'll put links to the in the bio to your website for you as well, Haley. Okay, thank you.
1: Kenny, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us and Una for arranging this. That's yeah, been really, really interesting, really fun yeah thank you both
0: for um chatting with me it's been fun been good yeah i was so nervous at the start Haley, but I'm, I'm so glad to get talking to you again before you go as well because you're off on your new venture soon
2: yep in january first week of january i'm off to northampton i'm gonna so,
0: really, yeah. check back in with us and let us know how you're getting on we'll, oh yeah watch out for you being viral again <laughs> thanks <laughs>